teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. couple of weeks, the Lord has just, I think, impressed me with the fact that you know, many of us are going through some great trials. Um, and the Psalms are a wonderful place to go, I think, because they express a real person talking about real events that they are going through, real struggles. Uh, the Psalms are a wonderful book, 150 poems which contain uh, uh, statements and interactions and, and words written for those going through the good and the bad, the blessing and the trials, the failures and the triumphs, the joyful and the painful. And if you spent any time on this planet, I know that you have encountered the painful. I know that you have gone through afflictions. I know that you have seen trials. And again, maybe some of you are right in the middle of one right now. Just in these last couple of months, many in our own church family, uh, we've had many of our senior saints depart to be with the Lord. Uh, many of us have children that are suffering disease or sickness. In fact, I, I went to see one precious little girl last week whose kidney had failed her. And thankfully the Lord has been bringing her through that. But you know, I know some of you here have been looking for work for a while or maybe just recently lost your job or maybe you're losing your home or have lost your home. Some of our marriages are on the edge. Conflict in our homes with our kids or between our kids. Maybe there's a tension with extended family, perhaps tension with someone else here. Maybe struggles on your job, at your school. Maybe you're in a place right now where you feel like nobody knows or cares about me. You know, just for many of us, the daily burdens of life, life itself, can bring affliction. And trials are a fact of life. Augustine said, God had one son on earth without sin, but never one without suffering. Tennessee Williams quipped, Don't look forward to the day you stop suffering, because when it comes, you'll know you're dead. <laughs> or who can forget... Farm boy Wesley, as he was speaking to Princess Buttercup and Princess Bride, when he said, Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. <laughs> These are true statements. All of us have or will suffer affliction. All of us will go through difficulties. And the question is, what do you do when it comes? What do you do? Do you try to ignore it? Hope it goes away? Do you uh, seek comfort? In some other place? I mean, where do you go? For, do you try to escape it? And if so, where? Well, this morning we're going to see from Psalm 119 where we can find true peace in the midst of even the worst of affliction. Where we can go when we are going through that trial. And before we go to the text, let me ask God to bless our time in His Word. Lord, it is to You we look. It is to Your Word. Now we look, Lord, for... Comfort, God, for help, for direction, for hope. In the midst of trial, I know some of us are suffering greatly even now in this moment. I pray, God, that you would use your word to revive, to renew, and to strengthen as only you can through it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, from this psalm, Psalm 118, we're going to look at um, three things. The reality of affliction, the reason for affliction, and the remedy for affliction. Now, Psalm 118, if you think about it, probably didn't come up on your top ten lists of psalms to go to when you were looking for comfort and suffering. This psalm is known primarily for some other things. Uh, This psalm is probably most famous for the fact that it is the, see, you know, the longest chapter in the Bible. It is also known for its focus on the Word of God. As Brock read from it earlier, we could see that. It is a focus which is legendary because of the 176 verses, all but three of them make reference to the Bible. In it, we find numerous synonyms for the Bible to make that point. Uh, The author uh, calls it, it's translated as law or testimony, precept, commandment, ordinance, statute, judgment, words, way, sayings. Over and over, the psalmist talks about the word. He speaks of its value. He speaks of his love for it. In verse 11, he describes the word's importance for holiness when he says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Or in verse 105, he says how the word provides direction. Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. I should probably make a song about that. Verse 160, we see the word is without error, it is without eternal. He says, your word, the sum of your word, all of it is truth. And every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. So in verse 18, he expresses his own heart for the word when he says, Open my eyes that I may see and behold wonderful things from your law. In verse 97, how he declares, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You see, this psalm, this psalm is a testimony of one who has overwhelming loyalty and love for the word, a delight and dependence on it, a a help. It's a help to him. He hungers for it. He hopes in it. It's one who is corrected by it and completed by it. Indeed, indeed Psalm 119 is a a chapter like like no other and how it can kindle an affection and a passion for the Word of God. And the author chose a unique way to to structure this poem. I showed earlier in the first hour the... I don't know if I still have the clicker here. This one worked. I just wanted to show you this real briefly, not because I'm going to do a Hebrew lesson for you, though, although I think you're going to be ready to translate in a minute here for me, right? He's in seminary. You got this down, right? Um, just to show you, if you notice the red letter, every eight verses in this psalm begins with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And he goes through the alphabet from, from Aleph, the first, all the way to the end of the alphabet, Tau. And each stanza, he begins with this same letter. So... There's something about him doing this. This is a psalm written, remember, about the Word of God, right? And then he talks about the value of hiding it in our hearts. This isn't a new technique. It was used in several other psalms, several other places. Lamentation, the entire book, is an acrostic like this, similar to it. Proverbs 31, the Proverbs 31 woman, in verses 10 through 31, is an acrostic. Each verse begins with a subsequent letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And I think the psalmist here does it because he is wanting to uh, use this. It's used often as a uh, numeric, mnemonic device, a way to remember. If it begins with the same letter, it can help you remember it. And since he tells us that the word he hides in our heart, we are to hide in our hearts, this is one way to help us to do that. And there are some in this body who have actually memorized this whole psalm, believe it or not. All 176 verses. I'd give you their names so you can quiz them on it, but maybe later. 
But some of your Bibles may show the Hebrew letters there uh, in, as a su- subsection titles at each eight verses. Well, that's why. It's because each of the verses after that letter begin with that letter. And again, I think the author does this not only to show the literary skill and creativity, but also as a helpful device to remember this psalm. Now, we're not told who that author is explicitly. Uh, he's probably not an older man, given what he says in verse 9 and verses 99 and 100. Some think it may be David, given the passion that he expresses in the psalm and the fact that he used this acrostic technique in several other psalms. Others say maybe it was Daniel or Ezra because of references here to princes and rulers over them. Jeremiah is another possibility. We don't know for sure who it was. We can't identify for certainty who wrote the psalm, but we can know with certainty why he wrote it. And that's what's important for us to see. For throughout the psalm, the author expresses what is going on in his life. And we need to remember that just as with every portion of Scripture, it's not written out of a vacuum. It's not written as somebody just trying to wax eloquent of some theological musing like a disconnected philosopher. Every book in the Scripture is born out of real circumstances. It's written by a person that is undergoing real situations in his or her life. Here we see in this psalm, it is written by a man who was being oppressed, who was being persecuted, a man under affliction. Verse 22, he describes the shame and humiliation that's coming about from being slandered by his rulers. In verse 42 and 51, he tells of being insulted and scoffed at. In verse 69 and 78, he's saying his reputation is smeared. In verse 85, he says, The arrogant have dug pits for me. They have persecuted me with a lie. They almost destroyed me on the earth. In verse 161, he says, Princes persecute me without cause. At least 20 different verses, he talks about the fact that he is under persecution, that he is suffering affliction, that he is going through great trials, that people are around him trying to smear his name and shame him and discourage him. And he's weary. He's troubled. He's downcast. He says in verse 107, I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord. And in verse 28, he says, My soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me. In verse 147, I will rise before the dawn and I will cry for help. I wait for your words. Or in verse 82, when will you comfort me? Or again in verse 84, when will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? Again, you see, this psalm wasn't written as a a guy who sat down and thinking, I think I'm going to write a doctrinal statement on the Bible. Though it is a supreme one, in fact. No, this is from a guy who sat down to write out his prayer. This psalm is a prayer. It's a prayer of a man who's afflicted, a prayer of a man who's crying out for strength to endure, a prayer of one that is wanting to be delivered, to be renewed in his soul, to be revitalized, to be lifted up. It's from a man whose spiritual vitality is waning and he's asking, God, renew it, strengthen me, help me. And this cry for renewal reaches a crescendo in the verse 20th stanza of this psalm. If you can go to verse 153. 153. It is the stanza for the letter Resh. He says this. Look upon my affliction and rescue me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to your word. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they, not, they do not seek your statutes. Greater your mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your ordinances. 
Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, yet I do not turn aside from your testimonies. I behold the treacherous and loathe them because they do not keep your word. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Here in this 20th stanza, it's really a microcosm of the entire psalm. We see here how he describes himself as being under affliction. That word means uh, to be in misery, to be troubled, to be oppressed or humbled. It can, be come, in, it can come in the form of uh, physical distress or emotional distress and trouble. In verse 157, we see the psalmist's affliction again is coming from persecution, coming from those around him who are seeking to do him harm. That word means to, to hunt someone, to seek to do harm to somebody, searching, chasing them. To seek to do harm. He may be undergoing legal attacks. As he says in verse 154. God plead my case. Those are illegal courtroom terms. that He's talking about. Lord be my defending attorney. Deliver me from their charges. Against me. And this psalm reminds us. Of the reality of affliction. All throughout he talks about it. Reminds us that this is a part of life. Affliction will affect us all. Even those who love God, even those who are committed to his word. I mean, of anyone in scripture, this psalmist stands out as a man who loves God, loves his word. It's it's his food. It, it's his meditation. He says it's my meditation all the day. He longs for it. He he fed from it. He was consistently in it, communing with God through it. And yet even this man suffered affliction. Even he went through terrible trials the psalmist is showing us here by his own experience that none of us are exempt from suffering. Not one of us. Whether you're Christian or not. Whether you're young or old, rich or poor. Whether you're in authority or under authority, male or female. You will not avoid affliction. You will not escape trials. You can't elude them. Even though Abel gave acceptable offerings to the Lord. Do you remember what happened to him? Brutally murdered by his brother. Godly Hannah. She suffered the affliction of being barren. And more than that, and worse than that, one in her own family was taunting her for it. Job, who can forget him? He was called by God the most righteous man on the earth. And he suffered probably more than any other human save Christ. He lost his wealth, his health, his property, his children. His reputation. Joseph was unjustly treated for much of his young adulthood. Daniel was plotted against by his own co-workers and ended up in a pit of hungry lions. Or you remember Daniel's three friends, right? Do you, do you recall the reward that they got for refusing to bow down to the idol? They get to spend the night in a fiery furnace for their troubles. Many of God's prophets found themselves rejected, maligned, persecuted, even killed. 1 Peter 2.21 says Jesus suffered, as Tim read from earlier, leaving for us an example to follow. That means becoming a Christian doesn't give you a pass on suffering. And many ask, well, why? If I've placed my trust in God, if I've turned from my sin, if He has saved me, if He has removed the guilt of my sin and the punishment, and I'm going to be with Him in heaven forever, why allow me to go through affliction? If I'm his child, why would he do that? 
Well, before we tackle that question, we need to remember a very important truth about the reality of affliction. To see that, look in verse 75 of this psalm. Verse 75. Here the author gives a profound and important principle. He says there, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Now, the psalmist had said many times that there were other wicked enemies who were afflicting him, that they were bringing persecution, that that it was people, that it was men that were seeking to do him harm and discourage him and shame him. But yet here he says, God, you have afflicted me. Even though the psalmist knew the afflictions came at the hands of man, he understood ultimately who was responsible for it. God said himself in Deuteronomy 32, verse 39, See now that I, I am he, and there's no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Or in 1 Samuel 1, 6, it says that it was the Lord who had closed Hannah's womb. Joseph He knew his brothers were the ones that sold him into slavery. He knew that it was Potiphar's wife that had set him up to be unjustly accused and imprisoned. Yet he said to his brothers in Genesis 45, he says, God sent me before you to keep you alive. It was not you who sent me, but God who sent me. See, Joseph recognized who was the source or who was behind his affliction. In Job's case, Satan required permission from God before he could go after Job. And Jesus' death in Acts 2.23, it says that he was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. In the Sunday night class a few weeks ago, Ed, Ed referenced a book, a wonderful book, written by uh, the Puritan Thomas Botts, Boston. The book's called The Crook in the Lot. And what that statement means is that the crook being a bend, like if you're walking on a path and there's a bend in the path, and he used that title to describe those times where God puts a bend in your life, where he brings something uncomfortable or, or unwanted or discouraging or hard. And he brings that in your life as you are walking along. And Boston is saying that God's sovereignty, even in the midst of our trials in life, it's something that he brings That God is the one, as Ecclesiastes 7.13 says, who brings a crook in our lot. That he's ultimately behind it all. But, But as Boston so wonderfully describes, that that should not trouble you, but actually comfort you. He writes, Since it is your Father who has made it for you, speaking of the crook in the lot, question not, but there is a favorable design in it towards you. Furthermore, all who are disposed to commit themselves to God under the crook in their lot may take comfort in this. Let them know that there is no crook in their lot, but may be made straight. For God made it. Surely he can mend it. He himself can make straight what he hath made crooked, though none other can. See what he's saying? Why it's encouraging that knowing that God is behind it, knowing that God is the one that is sovereign in our lives. That's comforting because it says, you know what? You're not at the whim of some malevolent being. That you aren't at the mercy of some random events in nature. That you aren't at the mercy of a sinful man. That you aren't 
one who's being subject to a random circumstance, but that we are under the sovereign hand of a loving and good, all-knowing, all-wise, compassionate God. And he has a plan and purpose behind it. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Because if God is good and loving, then why does he put me through such trial? Why would he allow such terrible things in my life? Jerry Bridges, in his book, Trusting God, said this, Adversity is difficult even when we know God is in control of our circumstances. Right? Knowing God's sovereign, he said, it's still hard. He goes on to say, in fact, that that knowledge sometimes tend to aggravate the pain. If God is in control, we ask him, why did he let this happen? That's an important question. That takes us to our next point, the reason, reason for affliction. Why would God let such a thing happen? Now, I'm not going to presume it right now. I'm not going to presume at all that I know specifically why God may be putting you through or allowing a trial in your life. So if you come up to me afterwards and ask, I don't know what God is doing. But the scriptures thankfully tell us many reasons why God does bring trials. And so I want to go through a few of them with you so that as you are undergoing affliction and as you are suffering through difficulties and trials, that that these reasons may help you to see what God is trying to do through them. You know, first, God uses affliction to bring a person to salvation. One of the best examples I can think of is the wicked king Manasseh. You can read about him in 2 Chronicles 33. He was probably the most wicked king that Judah had ever seen. He was uh, steeped in immorality, brought immorality into the temple, gross idol worship. He was involved in sorcery and witchcraft and talking with demons, child sacrifice. He even murdered God's prophets. In fact, 2 Chronicles 33.9 says that Manasseh led Judah, God's chosen people, that he led them to be more wicked, to be more evil than all the nations around them. But instead of killing Manasseh, God did something else. God raised up the Assyrians. God raised them up to capture Manasseh and drag him away. In fact, they they bound him in chains and they put a hook through his nose. And they drug him across the hot desert back to Assyria. And during that long and painful and humiliating journey as he was being trudged along in the sand, that is when Manasseh humbled himself That is when he came to his senses. That is when he cried out to God for help and asked for forgiveness. And what's so encouraging about that story is that God, even as wicked as Manasseh was, God heard him. God was moved, it says, by his prayer, and he forgave him. Manasseh was transformed. He went back and tried to to reach the people he had led astray and get them to follow the Lord. But it was such a wonderful story. And you know, at the heart of it is that God used some terrible and awful situations to bring Manasseh to the point where he realized, God, I need you. As one person said, sometimes God brings us so low that the only place we can look is up. And that was Manasseh's case. Maybe you've heard of someone who, in their testimony, they describe a great trial or difficulty or series of circumstances they went through that God used to get their attention. Maybe that's your story. And I would ask you, are you uh, discouraged or bummed out or are you grateful for that affliction God brought you? I know Manasseh is. Now, it's better to realize that you're a sinner in need of a Savior before God does something drastic But it's comforting to know that God is so kind that he will even bring difficult things in order to 
bring us to Christ. That He will bring things in our lives and we may suffer temporarily, but that's so that we will not suffer eternally. And God not only uses affliction to bring us salvation, God also uses it for correction. Look at verse 67, Psalm 119, verse 67. He says there, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. The psalmist here confesses that he had been erring, that he'd been wandering off of God's path, that he had been straying. And so God brought affliction in his life to get him back on the path. In fact, if you remember from Hebrews 12 that we looked at several weeks ago where it said that uh, my son do not regard lightly the, the discipline of the Lord nor faint when you are reproved by them for whom the Lord loves he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. And he talks about the comparison to earthly fathers. And he says that these earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yes, indeed. And he goes on to say, yet to those who have been trained by it, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You see, one reason we have trials in our lives is because, like the psalmist, we stray. We deviate from the path. We err. We sin. And God may, in His kindness for our good, bring affliction in order to get us back on the path. But He doesn't do this as punishment. This is not retribution. This is not God saying, I'm going to show you who's boss. You better get your act together or else... And I say that because oftentimes believers, uh, other Christians will come to me and, and they're going through a trial and they say, why is God punishing me? Why is he mad at me? Why is he so angry? And we take this trial from God as if he were up in heaven with a large bat just waiting for us to stray so he could whack us with it. But that's not it at all. If you're his child, he doesn't punish you. He punished his son on the cross for your sin. That's where the punishment went. But sometimes he will bring things that feels like punishment, that is correction, because he wants to get you back on the path before your own good. So that you'd be communing with him. God brings correction so that we would be yielding the peaceful fruit of righteousness. He's not mad at you. His wrath was poured out on his son. If you're his child, he's not angry with you. He's not venting on you. He's bringing correction, just like a loving father who would physically correct his child in order to get them to see the importance and the danger of sin. Thomas Watson said this, A sick bed often teaches more than a sermon. We can best see the ugly face of sin in the glass of affliction. The psalmist understood this. In fact, right before verse 67, where he talks about the fact that before he was afflicted, he went astray. Right before that, he says, you have dealt well with your servant. And then right after that, he says, you are good and do good. You see, he recognized that even though the trials that he was in, even though the afflictions that he suffered, the psalmist appreciated it. And he recognized the goodness of God behind it. He said, I know this is coming from a good Gracious God, that this, this you're treating me well in doing this. It still hurts, though, God. I still need help. 
We see another reason for affliction in verse 71 when he says this, it is good for me, it is good for me that I was afflicted so that I may learn your statutes. Sometimes God uses affliction to train us in obedience, to help us in holiness. Sometimes we we undergo difficulties and trials in our lives, not because we have strayed, not because of sin, but simply because God is bringing those trials to help strengthen us to walk path of godliness sometimes there are things down the road that are coming that are going to be even more difficult and more uh, of a trial to to go through and so god uses other trials to prepare us to strengthen us for that right jesus suffered correction or not suffered but not for correction right he never sinned he never sinned at all yet in hebrews 5 8 there is this astounding statement regarding him where it says Although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Even Jesus Christ learned obedience. Now, that doesn't mean, again, that he disobeyed ever. But just this idea that that Jesus himself had to learn the path of holiness and that God used suffering and affliction to help him in that process for he was going to suffer and undergo the most difficult affliction that anyone has ever gone through when he went on that cross and suffered the weight of our sin, the rejection of the father, the guilt of the sins of the world on himself. That is a trial that none of us can fathom or imagine or identify with at all. And God used affliction in his life to prepare him for that moment. Some of you may be thinking, well, if Jesus is God, how can it be said that he had to learn something? We have to remember, Jesus put on human flesh, right? Luke 2.52 talks about that he grew in wisdom and stature, meaning he he had to learn, he had to, to grow just as you and I do. We had to learn how to walk and talk. So did Jesus. He came as a baby. Had to learn how to speak, how to walk, how to read, how to write, how to study. And so also, too, he had to learn obedience. Experientially as a man. And God used affliction to do that. Hebrews 2.10 says that God made perfect or matured Jesus through suffering. God brought trial and affliction in the life of his own son so that he would learn what obedience looked like no matter what the circumstance was and so that he would learn to sympathize with you and me and our human weakness. And so Jesus suffered. And there are times that God will be training you, that God will be preparing you for a difficult situation. And he may use suffering to do that. Right, we, we do this in the physical realm, right? If we are getting ready and preparing for a physically demanding event like running a marathon or, or maybe hiking up Kilimanjaro, as my brother David Dobbs did not too long ago, we had to train for that, right? You had to train, right, David? You didn't just wake up one day, I'm going to get some tickets, going to go to, is it in Kenya? And uh, hike at Kilimanjaro for fun. I've had friends that actually uh, ran a marathon without training at all. They were in bad shape at the end of it, let me tell you. You have to prepare for that. Your body has to be trained to be ready for that. So much more so in the spiritual realm that God will bring training. And that training is not always easy. But know that He is using it to mature you, to prepare you, and to help you. And there's another reason that God brings affliction in our lives, and that is to share the sufferings of Christ. Just as the author of Psalm 119 was going through persecution, probably because of his commitment to God and his word, 
so too, if you are committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, you will undergo and suffer persecution for that commitment. Peter said in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which exists among you as, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of God and of glory rests on you. You know, if you're living for Christ, if you're seeking to know Him and make Him known, then you will suffer. You will suffer. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All who desire to live in godly in Christ Jesus will be comfortable. You know the verse, don't you? All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus in this life will be persecuted. Will go through trials. There's a price, brothers and sisters, for following God. Abel suffered it with his life. And there are many other examples since him. But know this, when you suffer for Christ, you then have a connection with Christ. A special connection. Notice that Peter said, sharing in the sufferings of Christ. For when you and I, when we suffer on his behalf and for his name, we end up with a special connection with him. We understand his suffering just a a little bit more. We identify with him more. We can appreciate what he went through and we can follow his own example. You share a special bond as you go through what he went through. You stand with him in that moment saying, I am with Jesus and I would rather be with nobody else. Affliction really is a blessing. That's why Peter said in 1 Peter, when you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. It is a blessing. The disciples experienced that in Acts 5 when they had been flogged persecuted for their faith in Christ, for their declaration that Jesus is the only way. And then they went away from that flogging and rejoiced in being considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. So God will bring affliction. He'll bring affliction to, so that we would share in the sufferings of Christ, so that we would be trained in obedience. He brings affliction for correction. He brings affliction to bring us to salvation. And going back to Psalm 119, verse 71, we see another reason for affliction. The psalmist said there, It is good for me that I was afflicted. Oh, if we could just get to that place. It is good for me that I was afflicted. Verse 75, he says, In faithfulness you have afflicted me. You know, we can never be reminded enough that, that God uses the crook in our lot for our good. You know Romans 1, or 8.28, right? It's often quoted, and we should know it. We should quote it. We should have it embedded in our souls. How does it go? We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. Again, God causes. He brings it about. And He brings about even affliction for the good of those who love Him. Beloved, this is a bedrock passage 
Again, this must be in the very fiber of your hearts, for you must have it to go to it in those times of trial and difficulty and preach it to yourself. Remind yourself of it. that God is doing this for my good. I don't understand it. It sure doesn't feel good right now. I wish it were gone. But in some way, God is using this in my life. And for some of you, you've gone through things that it seems it's impossible to imagine how any good could come from this. Some of the things our children have had to endure or losing a child. How is that good? Ken Boa, author of Talk Through the Bible, said it well when he said, We must come to the point where we are willing to admit two truths about ourselves. One, although we think we do, we do not really know what our best interests are. And two, even if we did, we could not achieve them on our own. Only an omniscient, loving, and sovereign God knows and wants what is truly best for us and is capable of bringing it about. Paul then describes what that ultimate good is in the very next verse in Romans 8, where he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. God will use every event in your life, including suffering, to help you to be conformed to the image of His Son. Everything that He brings is intended for that purpose if you're His child. Everything. Everything. Even things that look like there's no way God could use this. He is. Otherwise, that verse is wrong. And if that verse is wrong, we might as well throw out the rest of the Bible too. But it's not. It's true. You can bank on it. God somehow is using it to help you be conformed to the image of His Son. And it doesn't stop there. Because in the end, it isn't all about us, is it? That very next line, He says, is to be conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. Ultimately, do you know why God is bringing affliction? Even if it's for correction, for sharing the sufferings of Christ to help train you in obedience, salvation... Whatever those reasons, you know, ultimately what God is doing, he's bringing that affliction for your good so that God will use it in your life to help you look more like Jesus to the end that he would be lifted up through you. That's you and me, sinful vessels who hated God, who were running our own way, who were not desiring to follow him at all. God will use you to lift up Jesus as he conforms you to his image. You have to tell yourself this in the middle of the most difficult of circumstances. God, somehow you're going to use this not only to help me look more like Jesus, but that you would make him to be seen by the world as the firstborn, which is a word that means uh, a preeminent one. It's the word prototokos, the exalted one, the, the chief one. Through that affliction and that trial, you are suffering, maybe even right now. God's using it and will use it if you're his child, to exalt Jesus Christ. What better purpose in life is there than that? To draw you near to himself, to glorify his son. It tells us that anything that happens in our lives is for a noble purpose. Your suffering is not without purpose. God will use it. Now, there are other reasons for affliction. We don't have time to go through them all. I just wanted to to consider these, meditate on them, and consider the trials that you are going through, and think about 
what God is doing and, and will be doing through that trial. And so far we've seen the reality and the reason of affliction. Let's turn our attention in the time we have left to the remedy, the remedy for affliction. We need to remember ultimately again that first there's no remedy for affliction, no lasting, no true, no genuine, no helpful remedy in the end for affliction without knowing Jesus. If you don't have a relationship with Christ, then you don't have the Holy Spirit residing in you. Then you don't have a a resource, a supply of strength. You don't have the wellspring of God to soothe your soul. Jesus said in Matthew 11, these familiar words, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's a word that means to be revived, like the word the psalmist used so often. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Only in Christ is there rest. Only in Christ is there relief. Only in Christ is there peace for the soul. Only in Christ can we truly be revived. Yeah, you can find some temporary relief in other things. You can run to substances or relationships or entertainment or, you know, and they may help for a little while. They may offer relief for a time, but that relief comes at a cost. And even if they could give you some relief in this life, they don't give you any in the next. But Christ says, come, come to him. Come to Him with a contrite heart, recognizing your sin. Come to Him seeking His forgiveness. Come to Him with a desire to turn and place your trust in Him, to turn from that sin, to follow Him. Come to Him as Lord. Give Him your allegiance. Come to Him with a desire to worship Him, to love Him with all your being, which is what He created you for. Come to Him with a desire to know Him. Come to Him with a willingness to commit yourself for life to Him. Come to Him recognizing that He sacrificed Himself and paid a penalty on the cross and died for your sins so that you would not have to pay for your own sins. And if you come to Him in this way, Jesus Christ will accept you. Just as God accepted Manasseh, that humble, contrite prayer, despite all He had done, God will accept you. He will give you rest. Now again, that rest does not mean that you will not have trials. That does not mean that you will be delivered from all affliction. That rest that he gives doesn't mean you're going to have a trouble-free life. Anyone who tells you something different is selling something. Now, our beloved psalmist here, he still experienced trials. Though he was a believer, a committed believer, a mature believer who loved God and his word, who trusted in God, who wanted to obey him, but he still suffered. He still faced overwhelming trials. Brothers and sisters, we will too. But thankfully, our brother, the writer of this psalm, shows us the resources that we have to find rest, even in the worst of hardships. And that first resource is in the nature of this psalm itself. For as I mentioned to you, this psalm is a prayer. In fact, it's a prayer from verses 4 and on. It's the longest prayer in the Bible, is this psalm. He's speaking to God through this. For when the godly suffer affliction, that is where they go. Only God can help us. Our trials should drive us to Him, right? 
In verse 153, he cries out, look upon my affliction, rescue me. In the next verse, he says, plead my case, redeem me, revive me. Again in verse 156, revive me. And again in verse 159, revive me. Sixteen times over in this psalm, he prays and begs God for revival to help him so that he may live, so that he may be renewed and strengthened. There's earnestness here. Do you see it? Do you see the conviction? He knows, God, you're the only place I can go. Matthew 7, 7. You remember Jesus' familiar words from the Sermon on the Mount where he said, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and door will be opened to you. Well, those verbs, ask, seek, knock, are present active imperatives, which mean keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Don't ever stop. Not because God needs to hear the prayer 50 times before he'll take action. But he wants us to be wrestling. He wants us to be earnest, to have conviction, a, a deep and sincere longing to be clinging to him and only him. Sometimes that affliction comes because he wants us to remove those other things we keep running to and run to him. Find comfort in him and help. God's not a genie that we can casually express our wishes to. He is our great and loving Father who wants us to trust Him. And sometimes He may bring a trial in our life to remind us to be spending time with Him, to commune with Him. Not because He needs our prayers, but for our good and for His honor. So the psalmist prays over and over, Revive me! Revive me! It's a word that means to to be strengthened, to be renewed, to be restored, to to be given life. And here we know it's more than just physical life that he's asking for. Uh, His own soul is is in discouragement and in the depths of despair. In verse 25 he says, my soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me. With intensity and conviction he's begging God here over and over. To press on, to give him the motivation, to be impassioned, to be restored. And in his prayer for revival, he also describes the key means of that revival. In his prayer, we see the key remedy for action. In fact, this remedy, it undergirds the entire psalm. It's the theme which makes up this whole wonderful prayer. Look again at verse 154. He says, revive me according to, finish it for me, your word. And in verse 156, revive me according to your ordinances. In verse 25, he said, my soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to your word. Or verse 28, my soul weeps because of grief. Revive me, strengthen me according to your word. Verse 76, oh, may your loving kindness comfort me according to your word. Verse 107, I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord. According to your word. Verse 116, sustain me according to your word. Verse 149, revive me, O Lord, according to your ordinances. Verse 170, let my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your word. This, This grand psalm, this magnum opus of text... On the greatness and importance of the word of God. It it wasn't transcribed by some poet looking for an interesting topic to write about. It wasn't written or recorded by some guy secluded in his comfortable study. Who likes to write poetry. 
No, this psalm was forged from the heart of an afflicted man crying out for help. When he says in verse 153, look upon my afflictions, rescue me, for I do not forget your law. He's not saying there, God, I deserve to help you out because I spend time studying your book. He's saying, God, I'm relying on your word for strength, so revive me by it. Back in verse 50, he said, this is my comfort. This is my comfort in my affliction that your word has revived me. Or in verse 93, I will never forget your precepts for by them you have revived me. He's saying, God, I've, I've relied on your word in the past. I, I, I'm relying on it now. Renew me, strengthen me, revitalize me by it. This whole prayer, this whole prayer is a, is a declaration of an afflicted man. It's a declaration of the sufficiency and the power and the faithfulness of Scripture, God's word through his spirit to soothe and strengthen a suffering heart. That's why this psalm was written. He's not worshiping a book, but he recognizes how the author uses his book by his spirit to bring about what the soul needs in the time of need. Martin Luther, a man who was all too familiar with affliction, said this, Trials are supremely valuable. They teach you not only to know and understand, but also to experience how right, how true, how sweet, how lovely, how mighty, how comforting God's word is. He realized in the face of all he went through, just how precious and soothing and renewing the scriptures are. This living book, this spirit-inspired document, this communication from God, this is what God uses to revive. This is what God uses to revitalize the heart. This is what God uses to relieve and to refresh the soul. You remember what Paul said in Romans 15, 4? When he's talking about the scriptures, he said this, Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. See, God's Word gives hope, gives encouragement. For in it we are told of His wonderful gospel. For in it we are reminded of His many promises. In it we are shown who God is. In his word, in the scriptures, we are given examples of how God's grace and how he has strengthened and and helped people in many different circumstances. In this book, we are told of what the future holds. In this book, we are told of heaven. And most encouraging of all, in his word, we see Jesus. For when we are dry, when we are discouraged, when we are beaten down by trials, that is when we need to see Jesus most of all, right? We need to see the one who went before us. We need to see the one who understands us, the one who showed us how to live, and the one who loves us. John Bunyan, another who was familiar with suffering and affliction, the one who authored Pilgrim's Progress, he was widowed with four children. One of his children was blind. He was slandered. Because he preached the Bible, he was slandered as an adulterer. They made up stories about him. He was a heretic. Soon after he remarried, he went to prison for 12 years, separated from his family for preaching the Bible. 
And while he was in prison, he said these words. I never had in all my life so great an inlet into the word of God as now sitting in that cell. The scriptures that I saw nothing in before are made in this place to shine upon me. Jesus Christ also was never more real and apparent than now. Here I have seen him and felt him indeed. I have seen such things here that I am persuaded. I shall never while in this world be able to express. He did a pretty good job with Pilgrim's Progress. He goes on to say, being very tender of me, God hath not suffered me to be molested, but would with one scripture and another strengthen me against all. Beloved, I encourage you this week, whether in the midst of a trial or not, but especially if you are, spend some time with our brother who wrote this psalm. Because his love for the word is infectious. Take every day this week, read through it. Meditate on it. Take a few passages out of it to memorize. Because this psalmist's dependence on God's truth, it will inspire you. I think his example will motivate you. Here in the experience of his own life and the truth that he describes, you will find renewal for your afflicted soul. O Lord, revive us according to your word. Let's pray. Lord, it isn't a trite saying that uh, just read the Bible. (laughs) It is life itself, even as the apostles declared and as we sung earlier, that where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. You have the words, the only words that bring true hope. You have the words, the only words that bring encouragement, that Renew and revitalize us. They give us peace and rest even when going through the most horrendous of circumstances. Lord, we thank you that that word is written for us. We thank you for your spirit who gives us understanding, who helps us to live it out. We thank you that we have your word and that through it we can be revived. And I pray, God, you would help us this week, enable us, remind us to to go to it, to find strength from it, to depend on it, just as the psalmist did. And Lord, if there are any here that are just undergoing a difficult trial and affliction, God, may you soothe their heart and encourage them to to look to you through your word, even to spend time in this psalm and, and find the relief and the hope only the scriptures bring. And we are so grateful for it. We're thankful for how you use our trials in our lives to help up lift up Jesus. And I pray, God, that, that you would continue to use us to that end. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh-huh.